Good evening, listeners. It's the 24th of February, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guest and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Samuel Burns, a first-year master's student in the Department of Anthropology. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you guys for having me. Can you give us an overview of what it is you do in your department? Okay, so I'm a first-year student in the Applied Anthropology program, uh, getting a Master of Science here. Uh, so I'm an archaeologist, uh, and I work with a team uh, led here by Dr. Lauren Davis, and we investigate some of the earliest sites in North America, um, the, the peopling of North America or first American studies. Um, <clears throat> my particular interest in this area is uh, stone tool research. So I uh, focus on stone tools, projectile points or arrowheads or other types of stone tools. And here at Oregon State, I'm using some modern methods that we've been developing in the labs here for making 3D models of these tools and then using some modern uh, geometric, morphometric analysis tools to do kind of statistical analyses of the shapes of the tools. Um, so that's, a, that's my work in a nutshell here. That sounds super cool, and I definitely want to dig into the um, the 3D imaging and things that you're doing, but can you first tell us a little bit about um, the where you've collected these tools from and where you're conducting your field research? Okay, yeah. Um, so my field research uh, here, at, here at Oregon State, so far the, the main field site that I work at is uh, Cedros Island off of Baja, California. Um, it's a very interesting early site. Um, so far it's... it's uh, produced evidence of the earliest hook and line fishing in North America, which is uh, around 11,000, 10,000 years old. Um, this is a, a very important site for the, for the peopling of North America because it shows that there were people living on the coasts at a very early time period that had a very um, coastally adapted uh, material culture that's focused on extracting resources from the sea. Um, so that becomes very important in overall um, first American studies. Because that's that um, idea is a little bit different than what people normally think, right? Right. So the traditional idea is that um, humans first entered Beringia, which is now um, submerged under the Bering Sea, um, around 60,000 years ago or so. Um, the dates are very up in the air because this area is mostly flooded. <laughs> uh, lived there and then were, were blocked by the ice sheets and stayed there for a significant amount of time and then entered the United States through an ice-free corridor that opened up around 14,000 years ago um, east of the Rocky Mountains in, in Alberta, Canada. Um, and that the, the people who were in Beringia came through this ice-free corridor around 14,000 years ago and subsequently spread out throughout the United States and, and the rest of North America. Uh, this has been 
problematized in the, the last few decades, this story. Um, we're starting to realize that it's much more complicated. There are um, There's a lot of evidence now that, that seems to indicate that the, the First Peoples may have actually been coming down the coast. And that's important because the ice, um, the if people are coming in the interior of the continent, then they're kind of blocked up in Beringia until this ice-free corridor opens up. And that becomes kind of a hard limit for the peopling of North America. But if people are coming along the coasts, then the ice is no longer an issue, and that opens up the, the time depth of possible human settlement pretty significantly. Can you speak on what kind of evidence do you have that would suggest that uh, maritime people coming from the ocean are, uh, what kind of things do you find related to that versus how we traditionally would look at artifacts or find artifacts? Uh, so one, one of the... Um, issues in North American archaeology is it tends to be very hunting-centric, especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about stone tools. We talk a lot mm-hmm. about arrowheads and projectiles and dart points, and um, it's kind of a very hunting-focused technology. Um, what we're seeing at a lot of these earlier sites is that the technology is much more complex. Um, there's a lot of, of tools for, for processing other materials, not for making arrowheads, but for making, say, um, twine or string, which would then be used for all sorts of things, but one of the main uses along the coast would be fishing nets or fishing twine. Um, so also on Cedros Island, we, we found a bunch of stone tools that look like they're um, designed for processing fiber to make rope and string rather than, and, and very few tools that seem like they're for hunting, for hunting terrestrial animals. Okay. Um, I was just going to ask you, how do you know, um, like, because I would think fiber isn't preserved nearly as well as a stone tool, but it's the tools that you're finding. You're still finding tools, but instead of finding projectile tools, you're finding tools to process fiber correct. instead. Okay. Yeah. So so we, we figure out what the tools are used for by a bunch of different methods. One of the common ways is, is experimental archaeology, where we try to reproduce the tools and then try to, you know, see what you could do with them. And, uh, and then we also look at the use where on the the traditional tools on the, the actual artifacts. Um, and so that's work that's been done by the project before I joined. Um, but another important thing at Cedros is, is the range of, of um, aquatic resources that we're finding, fish bones and, and shell from a wide variety of offshore environments, from the deep water all the way up to the intertidal zone. So it's that's showing that the people who are living here have a very well-developed maritime focused culture marine resources are kind of a, a center of their culture so th- these aren't people who were, were chasing uh large animals you know uh, pleistocene megafauna like mammoths and mastodons and then reached the coast and suddenly decided to stay there They've, there's a, a time depth to their uh, cultural adaptations that is really really fascinating to see mm-hmm. so you you have the cedros um island site, but you also have this other more inland site, right? Yeah. So the the site that I'm actually doing my thesis on um, at this point, I'm very early in the, the thesis stage, so I, mm-hmm. I expect everything to change multiple times before um, I, I'm done here. But uh, <laughs> my current my current idea is that um, I'm going to be working on the material from a, from a single pit feature at this site. Uh, the site is called Cooper's Ferry. It's in uh, Western Idaho on the the Salmon River, uh, and actually the field work is mostly completed there. Um, so I probably won't be doing any field work there, but I will be analyzing the, the tools from this single um, feature at the site. 
Once you have uh, excavated the tools that you want to look at, what's the process look like once you bring it back into the lab? Um, okay, so the, the first thing we have to do is um, take everything that came out of the site and, first of all, verify that it all is uh, what we call a cultural artifact and it's not a geofact or an accidental thing that just looks like an artifact. Um, field work is, you know, messy. There's a lot of dirt, <laughs> as you can imagine. You're, a lot of times you, you'll bring things out of the ground and you're not sure if they're an artifact or not, but it's easier to just put them in a bag and let it get sorted out in the lab. So that's the first thing. Make sure everything is real. Um, and then begin sorting things into just rough piles, you know, our projectile points or sometimes as basic as stone tools versus bone tools or mm -hmm. um, other types of artifacts. Um, so once I've identified all the stone tools, the next step is to make um, images, is to make the 3D images. So the traditional method of doing that is to use a laser scanner, um, like a Next Engine is one of the primary brands of those. Um, that's how we started in the lab. Um, before I came along, that's how most of the models were made. Uh, these have a the disadvantage of being very, very large. They're about the size of a, of a full-size copying machine. Uh, they're very heavy, they're very expensive, and they're kind of, once you set one up, the artifacts come to you rather than being able to take it out in the field and, and use it in, in other places. And that gets to be a problem when you're working with international projects because there's always rules about artifacts crossing borders. Some mm -hmm. countries are very, very strict, and uh, we wouldn't be able to bring the artifacts here to do the, to do the um, imaging. So we've been working on a bunch of other methods, uh, mostly using photography. So we use a structured light scanner that uses um, basically project patterns of light onto the artifacts and take a bunch of photographs from different angles and put them in a computer and the computer analyzes the patterns and stitches them together. Um, and also photogrammetry, which is similar, but you just use uh, a, a bunch of photos taken at, at usually at 10 degree increments around the artifact from multiple different heights. And all of those images go into a software program that stitches them together and analyzes them and creates a, a 3D image. Um, there's a bunch of other methods, but these are the main ones we're working on. So you're really trying to come up with a, a portable system that costs less, right? Um, and this last one that you mentioned, what kind of camera do you need for that? Um, in the lab, we you know you want to use the, the highest quality camera you you can because that'll give mm -hmm. you higher quality results. Um, so in the lab, we use just you know digital SLR cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get decent results with this with even a cell phone camera. Uh, okay. You can depending on how how precise your model has to be. Mm -hmm. um, there are actually some apps you can download that you can use on a um, just your standard smartphone, and and you know people are using these to make rough three D models of sculptures at museums and things like that. So um, it's actually this is this is a, a area of imaging that has applications far beyond archaeology and we're kind of adapting things that other people have been doing for quite a while. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's the next step. Uh, once we've acquired the images then, then that's where uh, the work of, of the rest of the people in my lab becomes very important. So they, uh, we have a, a program that was just developed in our lab called Glimmer. Uh, GIS-based lithic morphometric research. Love the name, by the way. Uh, it is a great <laughs> name. <laughs> and so what this program does is it, it treats the artifacts as if they are landscapes, essentially. And it, it, um, it's based on 
GIS, geographical information systems, and we can use a lot of the statistical tools, spatial statistical tools that are, were developed for analyzing landscapes and use them just at a much smaller scale on these small artifacts. Uh, so we can put the, the these 3D images, load them into Glimmer, and there's a bunch of things that happen. The first is just kind of basic metrical information. So things like length, width, thickness, um, things that we can do manually with calipers, they can be done with the click of a button. Um, and then we also can start to do much more complicated things that you can't do with traditional linear measurements. So we can make models of a whole bunch of points and analyze their, uh, they're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. So you can do things like um, looking at a, you know, creating a standard kind of idealized uh, type from a bunch of, of examples and then you can look at how each type how it varies from the from this kind of abstract point. And so that can start to tell you all sorts of really interesting things about the development of different technologies and, and how technologies are changed throughout time and changed throughout space. And rather than just doing this at a qualitative level, we can actually get in and quantify these statistical variations between shapes. And that opens up a whole new range of analyses that literally weren't possible a few years ago. Yeah. It sounds like this program not only allows you to uh, get a huge amount of data that's mathematically based, but it also frees up time for you and other researchers to not do spend time on just measuring or uh, weighing out things. Right. That's that's the, um, the end goal. Um, right now, the process of making the images does consume quite a bit of of actual okay. human time. Um, mm -hmm. We're working on automating many of these processes. There's a lot of pre-processing that has to happen. Okay. Um, so we're that's a, a big push for the, the research group is, is automating a lot of these more manual processes. Cool. But that is the idea, yeah, that instead of spending 40 hours with calipers in the lab, we'll be putting these models in the computer, letting the computer do that brute work, and then we spend our time asking questions about the humans who made these tools. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I think it's just like, I, I don't want this to get missed because I think it's really cool of how this, how clever it is that the software uses GIS type data processing to be like, oh, instead of looking at a ravine or something, it's like assessing a, a crack or something in this tool in the same way, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it is, it's a really, it's a, it's a really simple, but brilliant reapplication of yeah. tools that already existed for a very different purpose. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Do you want to jump in and tell us about how you came to Oregon State? What were you doing before this? Sure. Um, yeah, so I I have kind of a a, a winding road to Yeah, let's just Oregon go way State. back to the beginning <laughs> because Sam actually has like a very, very interesting story um, in terms of being non-traditional in his education. Yeah, so I, I was uh, born and raised in rural Michigan um, and I grew up in a very um, conservative uh, religious background. Uh, we didn't go to school at all. My parents um, kept us at home. Uh, we really, they really had a very strong distrust of any kind of worldly education. Um, so we weren't even really homeschooled. We just like stayed at home, um, worked on our family farm, did things like that. Um, I was always fascinated with 
history and ancient things. Uh, we lived in an old farmhouse, and we had a, a trash dump out back that was um, the remnants of the, the trash from the 150 years or so that this house had been standing. Uh, I spent a lot of time as a kid um, digging through this trash, putting together the plates, putting together medicine bottles, uh, and felt this like, this attachment to the people who had lived there before I did, who um, an, an attachment that's very different than you can get by reading about something, you know, just handling the, the actual material culture, uh, it becomes very addictive. It's something that a lot of people don't realize until they start doing it is uh, <laughs> that, that, that kind of connection with the past is that you can gain from material objects is, is different from, from any other method of studying the past. Just reading it in a book, you know, having right. something tangible, yeah, gives you a different experience. Um, so when I was 17, I decided I, I really wanted to go to college. Um, that was not really considered an option in my family. And also it was, I was having a hard time getting universities to even, in the United States, to even give me a, a, a chance, basically. Um, so I found a school that would accept students with no background. It was... Um, Hebrew University of Jerusalem had an international program. Um, I believe they still do. Uh, and this was back in the early 2000s. It was at the height of the, the Intifada. There was a lot of geopolitical issues going on, and not many um, foreign students were going to this program. So they were kind of you know, accepting pretty much anybody, I think, at this <laughs> point. <laughs> so at, at 17 years old, I, I left home. Um, flew halfway across the world. I'd never really been away from home. I'd never been outside of the United States, except um, Canada, but that's just across <laughs> the border from where I grew up. So uh, I spent a year at the at Hebrew University, and it, it really it changed everything about my life. It introduced me to people who I never knew existed, <laughs> a, a whole world that was you know so far outside of this tiny conservative uh, farm. In, in Michigan. Uh, after, after a year there, I basically ran out of money, ran out of uh, stuff to do, and just kind of lived around Israel for a while, ended up in South Korea for a while, ended up back in the United States, where I began working in factories in Michigan. Um, the economy was not good in the <laughs> early 2000s in Michigan. In 2005, I was laid off from a bunch of factories and Finally had enough, decided it was time to go back to school. So I uh, tried to go to the University of Michigan. And at first they didn't really, uh, still didn't really want to give me a look. So I began going to the Washtenaw Community College in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and had just an incredible experience there. Uh, was really, really lucky to work with some really talented faculty who poured everything they had into teaching at this community college. Mm -hmm. um, I was surrounded by a, by a great group of very passionate, dedicated students. And after a year and a half or so, transferred into the University of Michigan, uh, where I completed my bachelor's degree in ancient civilizations and Near Eastern studies um, with another major in philosophy. Uh, Michigan was, a, was another wonderful experience. Um, I, again, was very fortunate to work with some really, really great professors. And uh, yeah, graduated in 2010 uh, from there. 
But my background still at this point was still very heavy in languages and history. I didn't actually do a field school. I didn't do any archaeology. I read a lot of archaeology to use as evidence for historical reconstructions, but wasn't actually getting my hands in the dirt. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, after that, I went on to, uh, to University of Cambridge, where I did a master's degree in Egyptology in 2012. And was planning on, on continuing my research of late Bronze Age Syria. But unfortunately, this is right when the uh, civil war in Syria began to, to happen. And uh, archaeological research there was pushed way, way back. And mm -hmm. um, that basically put an end to any of those plans. So I came back to the United States and kind of randomly fell into working in what's called cultural resource management, which is basically archaeology for regulatory purposes. Um, we have to help develop, development projects have to basically satisfy the federal government that they're meeting, uh, protecting, and, and, uh, and not impacting, not having a, a negative impact on archaeological resources or cultural resources. Um, so I began doing that. Uh, worked all around the United States for about five years. And uh, in the course of this work, began doing a lot of independent research on three separate areas. One is stone tool analysis, and especially this new 3D methods. Um, the other one is is geoarchaeology and soil science and kind of earth science intersection with archaeology. And the third is First American Studies, peopling North America. As, as I started working around North America, this question is the one that really grabbed me as the most interesting question to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's going on in, in archaeology right now. And as I was doing my own research in this, I kept seeing the same names popping up over and over and over again in things I was reading. Um, Lauren Davis, Alex Nayers, um, Dan Bean. So these are, at some point, I uh, just uh, gathered all my courage and sent an email to Lauren Davis, and uh, he encouraged me to send in my application, and then here I am. Here you are yeah. at Oregon State. <laughs> I love that story because you start out in just your backyard for so long, just falling in love with, you know, medicine bottles and plates. And then you it sounds like you made up for whatever traveling and seeing the world you hadn't had before very quickly and uh, got yeah. to see you're in Israel and then you're in England. And then uh, for five years, you're traveling around the U.S. for all kinds of things. Um what were you what would you do on a day-to-day -day basis uh during those five years so you were moving a lot yeah it, that totally depends on the project okay. um so a lot of projects are are preliminary survey projects before before a you know let's say a pipeline or a highway before they're given their final approval we go out as part of the permitting process and make sure there's nothing there um so it's basically just identifying anything old and so that can be that's a lot of a lot of hiking, a lot of nice. walking in straight lines, yeah. looking at the ground. We did very small <laughs> shovel tests, which range in size from uh, twelve inches to thirty or forty inches, depending on what state you're in. Um, yeah, a lot of driving on projects like that, sitting around, um, and then we go all the way up to actual excavations where you, you know, it's more like what you see on TV where you're sitting in a, a big square with a paintbrush and a trowel making very careful, you know, very carefully excavating things. 
Um, and then also monitoring is a big part. So that's where you end up at a construction site where there may be um, un, unrecognized archaeological remains, and we sit and we watch them dig and watch the construction happen, and and you know we yell out if we see anything. Um, so th- <laughs> yes. so it ranges the, the day-to-day life in in cultural resource management ranges dramatically from. I've had days where I've sat in a car for 12 hours and did nothing waiting for permission to go onto someone's property. I've had days where you start digging holes at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and you don't stop until the sun goes down. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a, you you never know what's going to happen in that, in that field, Uh, which is exciting because you get to, not only do you get to travel the country and see all the, the, the country, but you're also, you're digging holes everywhere. You're seeing, what the actual soil looks like everywhere, what the artifacts are like in every region. And it gives you a kind of big picture that's really hard to get any other way. So what are your plans from here? Well, I'd like to, um, I'm going to to continue doing archeological work uh, for as long as I can. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't have any plans of, of leaving this field it is it's uh it's what i love and it's what i'm good at so i'm gonna mm-hmm. do this hopefully the rest of my life uh i would like to get a phd after this um and then i'm i'm open to to careers within academia obviously that would that would be very nice but um i think we're all aware of the the current state of academic hiring um, so there is always options for, for me to go back into cultural resource management, but at a higher level, kind of directing projects, doing a little bit more of the research side of things rather than digging a hole where I'm told to dig a hole. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is, that is kind of a, a part of CRM archaeology everywhere. You, you dig where the projects are. But, mm-hmm. but uh, being at a, more, at a more senior level, that or there's also um, agency work that the federal government hires a significant proportion mm-hmm. of the archaeologists in the country, mainly with the um, National Forest Service, National Park Service, Bureau okay. of Land Management. Um, so those are all options. Um, but as, as long as I get to keep my hands in the dirt and also in the in the research mm-hmm. side of the field. Asking the questions. Right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, good. All right. So we have two uh, traditions on inspiration dissemination. Number one, uh, we want uh, to see if you would be willing to give us a piece of advice for either someone, uh, either a past self or someone on a similar track to you or just anyone that you think you have advice for. Yeah, um, so I have two quick pieces of advice. Um, first of all, as you're, you're getting into a field and you're, you're starting to explore it more, if you, if you see someone's work that grabs your attention, someone whose work interests you, whose, whose name you see coming up all the time as you're, you're reading things, don't be afraid to send that person an email. Uh, the worst that can happen is they ignore it. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it probably took me a month or two to, to get the courage to <laughs> send a, a cold email to this person whose papers I've been reading for a couple of years. Um, but I, that's, that's critical if you want to if you want to work with people, you have to, you have to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is, is don't specialization is, is a required part of graduate school. Obviously you're, you're spending your time getting very deep in a very narrow topic. But, um, I think a lot of 
times we feel a lot of pressure to like specialize and then be stuck in that specialization. And so I would say just just make sure you give yourself room to evolve, room for your your interests and and uh, and approaches to to evolve with you as you develop new interests. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so the other tradition we have is to outro on a song of your choice. So can you tell us what song you chose and why you chose it? Yes, yeah, so I chose the song uh, "Miss Shapes" by Pulp. The um, I chose this song because, to me, this is kind of like the anthem for all of us who come to academia from very different backgrounds. There's a lot of messages that you hear, whether explicitly or, or implicitly, there's a lot of messages you hear that you don't belong here, that this is not really your world. Um, and if I could read a, a short quote from the lyrics of this, it's, um, brothers, sisters, can't you see the future's owned by you and me? Uh, they think they've got us beat, but revenge is going to be so sweet. We won't use guns. We won't use bombs. We'll use the one thing we've got more of. That's our minds. And to me, that's the yeah. that's the the anthem for all of us who who really have to make our own space here. Yeah. And Absolutely. I found Oregon State to be a a wonderful campus filled with people who have very different pathways to get here. And I, I find that it's been very supportive of many of us, at least within my department mm -hmm. and within my cohort and the students who are, uh, who have been here before me. And I think that's great. And that's, uh, so yeah, that's uh, yeah. amazing. Thanks. And thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So here we have, um, Miss Shapes by Pulp. Mistakes, misfits Raised on the dirt of broken biscuits oh. oh, we don't look the same as you And we don't do the things you do 